Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 75, Heresies and Inquisitions. Here we are at episode 75, which has taken us up to the middle of the 13th century. In particular, we arrived at 1250 and the death of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. This is a good point to look around and take a peek at the society he ruled over, in particular from the point of view of one of its dominant aspects, religion. Before we go there, though, a quick note from Future Mike for Helenka, a new Patreon supporter who's just catching up and should be around here. So, Helenka, thank you very, very much for your support. Everyone remember to stay tuned after the episode for the sketch. We have seen over the course of our two years of podcast that, starting from the twilight of the Western Roman Empire, the clergy, and in particular the bishops in the cities, and the monasteries in the country had gained more and more political control as well as religious power. By the 11th and 12th century, this power and wealth had in many cases become huge, with many monasteries owning vast lands and becoming very highly profitable businesses. For example, the monastery of Saint-Requier in northern France by the 11th century could boast some 2,500 houses on their land, which stretched for over 6,000 hectares, or 23 square miles, and said land was also home to around 10,000 chickens. I sort of wonder who counted the chickens, but anyway. Now, with all this wealth accumulating, it was sort of hard for those involved to stay with their feet on the ground and live the simple life of the gospel. From the bishops and abbots up to the papacy in particular, we have seen that quite incredible levels of excess had been reached all the way up to many popes. Now, many were starting to question this aspect of the church, and the discontent was growing. With that discontent, there came also ideas on alternative ways in which religious organizations could work. This was also reinforced by the Crusaders, who were coming back home from the East with a whole bunch of crazy ideas. Indeed, up until that point, alternative ideas had not been much of a threat in the West, especially after the conversion to Catholicism of all the barbarian invaders, such as the Lombards and their Arianism. In the East, on the other hand, alternatives to mainstream Orthodox Christianity had run rife over the centuries. Now, the issue was arising also in the West, and the issue was called heresy. Up until that point, the Church had not had to deal with widespread heretical movements. What resistance there had been to the mainstream doctrine had been dealt with mostly with prison sentences, when the perpetrators could not be brought back into the fold. There was officially no torture or executions, after all, one of the main rules of the organization was, thou shalt not kill. 
the first real widespread movement with some organization behind it was the one founded by a man named Peter Waldo in the latter half of the 12th century in Lyon. He believed that the church should return to a more genuine, simple life, like that of the gospel, and should rid itself of its material wealth. He also believed in the importance of the Bible itself as a source for the faithful and commissioned what could be the very first translation into the vernacular of the Bible. When we use the term vernacular, we mean the local languages which by now had evolved from Latin and started to resemble the modern Romance languages a bit more, like French and Italian. At first, the priest let Waldo, who was not a priest himself, into their churches to divulge his ideas. However, when they started to feel that their personal possessions were threatened, and that this whole living like Jesus thing was making them look bad, they started to boycott him. Waldo, that is, not Jesus. Waldo did the whole let me speak to your manager thing and appealed to the Pope, who actually supported him. The French clergy were having none of it, however, and they went off on a smear campaign, which must have worked quite well, because the Valdensians, that's what his followers came to be known as, in the Council of Verona in 1184, were declared disobedient and asked to stop by Pope Lucius III with his famous Ad Abolendum Bull. They did not stop and continued to be disobedient in the face of rising persecution. Finally, in 1229, the church authorities had had enough, and in the Council of Toulouse, the interpretation of the Bible by secular scholars was condemned, as well as the translation of the Bible into the vernacular or local language, thus hitting hard at two of the pillars of the Valdensians. This gave a great push to the movement of the members of the group to seek refuge and hide out over the Alps into what is today Piedmont and Italian territory, where they actually ended up doing quite well and have a strong base there to this day. You might say that the church authorities couldn't find Waldo. Just pausing for effect there. Interestingly, the Waldensians show up today on modern tax returns in Italy. That statement has probably left you a bit confused, so allow me to explain. In Italy, when you do your tax return, you can choose to donate 8 per thousand to certain religious organisations from a list determined by the state. That means that for every 1,000 euros you have to pay in taxes, you can donate 8 to one of those organizations. They include, obviously, the Catholic Church, the Union of Jewish Communities in Italy, then Buddhists, Evangelists, and on the list of 12 organizations, you will also find the Union of the Methodist and Valdensian Churches. Actually, the Valdensians in recent years have made a good name for themselves for their charity projects and their levels of transparency and honesty by making all of their accounting public. I like to vary my donations to keep my accountant on his toes, and I think that this year I'll surprise him by donating to the Valdensians. How do you like that, Pope Lucius III? It's not a problem, because my accountant already thinks I'm weird anyway. 
Now, the year 1229, in which the Valdensians were de facto outlawed, having had their main practices banned, was also the year in which the church set up a permanent institution whose task it was to seek out and eradicate heresies. The name of this organization would resound over the centuries and evoke images of dark dungeons and cruel torture at the hands of sadistic monks, with comfy sofas and elements of surprise coming later. That organization was the Inquisition. This was not the first known example of an Inquisition. Indeed, a temporary one had been set up at the Council of Reims in 1184, marking the start of bishops actually searching out heretics to hand them over to the secular authorities. But with 1229, the Inquisition was made permanent and exists to this day. Now, it goes under the name of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, one of the recent leaders or prefects of the organization was one Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, a.k.a. Pope Benedict XVI. This setup of the permanent inquisition came at the end of a crusade, but not a crusade to free the Holy Land. It was against a specific heretical group, the Cathars, meaning pure ones, or Albigensians, since the group originated from the French town of Albi. The crusade indeed became known as the Albigensian Crusade. The ideas of this movement were among those imported from the east, and they would spread very quickly to southern France and northern Italy. They believed in a dualistic universe, with a good god that had created the spiritual world, and an evil god that had created the physical world. Thus, Everything made of matter was evil. Humans were angels trapped in their bodies, and to regain your angelic state, you were to renounce everything worldly. Sex for reproduction was totally out of the question, because by doing so, one would continue the existence of the material world. This didn't mean, however, that women were a temptation to be avoided. Quite the contrary. Since the trapped angels were considered sexless, they could be inside both men and women, and so women had just as much possibility to be spiritual leaders among the Cathars as men, since they believed in the transmigration of the soul, so you could be a man one time around and a woman the next. Made for an interesting variety, I would say. They also abhorred violence and killing, so they were against capital punishment, rather unusual for the Middle Ages, and would not eat any animal meat or products. So, they were proto-vegans as well as proto-feminists. Jesus Christ, in their view, was the leader of the angels and made of pure spirit, without any physical form, as was his mother Mary. Worst of all for the church, they believed that the church authorities should give up their wealth and lands and that the Pope, far from being the representative of Christ on earth, was the Antichrist. The movement spread thanks also to the sport of nobles who saw a chance to get their hands on ecclesiastical lands. One of the noble supporters was Raymond of Toulouse and it was he who finally set off the violent reaction of the church. Indeed, 
on the 15th of February 1208, a papal legate was murdered on Raymond's orders. The following year, Pope Innocent III launched what came to be known as the Albigensian Crusade, which would be not run by the Church, but by the zealous Simon de Montfort, with the support of the French king, who used the opportunity to extend the holdings of the French crown. Thousands were killed, including many innocent people. It would continue for over 20 years. We won't go too much in depth into this event, as it is more part of French history. It was also to regain control of the fight against heresy that, as we said, the Church under Gregory IX set up the Inquisition in 1229. The whole thing was by no means an original idea. Just under a decade before, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II in 1220 had set out very strict legislation against heretics who he saw as a threat to public order. It was he who introduced four years later the death penalty for heresy. The method of execution was borrowed from the Roman emperors of antiquity, being burned at the stake. This would later also suit the church authorities because it meant there would be no bloodshed. Gregory IX would then take up the idea in 1231 when he published a decree which called for life imprisonment with salutary penance for the heretic who had confessed and repented, and capital punishment for those who persisted. The secular authorities were to carry out the execution. Starting from this period, the figure of the Inquisitor was born, a travelling investigator and judge whose job it was to investigate accusations of heresy or find examples of heretical thought by interviewing adult villagers in the villages he would visit. The church, once again being the representative of Jesus on earth, was not historically too big on torture to extract confessions. But this practice proved unfortunately effective, so in 1251, Pope Innocent IV, in his Ad Extirpandable, permitted the use of torture. It was supposed to be an extreme case method and then only used once off. The more zealous inquisitors took the only once to mean only once per interrogation session. So during the next session they could start all over again. The inquisition had started and over the centuries it showed more than once that it deserved its rather nasty reputation. However, although there is no denying that there was indeed a lot of nastiness and injustice and many innocent people died and many of the people involved in the Inquisition were themselves nasty, it may be worth taking a moment to analyse the fact that heresy was perceived by both church and secular authorities as well as large sectors of the public as a real danger to the body politic and the normal way of life of which religious beliefs were an essential component. Many perceived heresies as perhaps we would view subversive or even terrorist organisations today, not saying that they were, of course, so the support for the Inquisition was quite widespread. Not to mention the fact that reporting someone to the Inquisition was a very good way of getting rid of your enemy next door or a business competitor, 
although you had to be very careful not to be playing with fire and have it boomerang on you. Among the various religious movements that took hold and spread between the 12th and 13th century, there was one which, although with its very existence was a threat to the riches and wealth and privileges of the high clergy and had very similar ideas to the Valdensians, managed not only to escape their fate and that of the Cathars, but also managed to become one of the most well-known religious organisations in the history of the Church and the world today. This was thanks in particular to the stern rules set out by its founder, a young man from the Umbrian town of Assisi, a young man called Francis. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters. This week it's the turn of the Matilde Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Aaron W., Benjamin, Deborah S., Eric R., Lorenzo, Maddie, Mattia, Paul A., Scott, Thomas, and Y.R. As always, I would also like to thank the Margherita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Andrew, Anthony, Selene, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Greg, Ignazio, J., Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist, Leninist, Sicilian, Reactionary Valetian, Roberta, Rodney, Shelby, Stephen and Vincent, and the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, we'll be talking about him relatively soon, Sen, Paolo, and Lisa K. Welcome aboard this week to Gordon. Thank you very much for your support, Gordon. And thanks very much to Sebi the Sloth for the lovely review. And I must say that it's absolutely true. My favourite animal is a sloth. You can ask my kids. They've asked me over and over and over. Thanks once again to everyone for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Your Holiness, here is uh, the list of the latest heresies. Okay, what are they? Well, um, there are some more people in Umbria who think that the church should uh, give up its wealth. Just how the bishop gave some money to the poor, what else? Well, uh, there is a group that is awaiting the arrival of a giant turnip. Turnip? Uh, Yes. Well, what are they doing? Uh, Nothing. Uh, They are just waiting for the turnip. Okay, well, leave them be for now. Let me know if the turnips shows up. Anything else? Well, 
Um, they say a man in Napoli, he uh, do a miracle. Really? What miracle? Ah, they say he make us some wine. Really? Out of water? Uh, no, they say he uh, used the grapes. So, he just made wine the usual way? Uh, uh, yes, I suppose. But it's uh, supposed to be a really good wine. Just have them send a bottle then, is that all? Uh, well... Come on, spit it out, man. I haven't got all day. Well, there is a group that says that... that what? We should all get uh, more exercise and eat more vegetables. Send the Inquisition. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.